Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author, Abigail Tucker. Her new book is Mom Genes, and that's G-E-N-E-S, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. Does motherhood change how a woman feels love? Are mothers destined to mimic their own mom's parenting style? Does the brain of a new mom ever really bounce back? The answers explored in Abigail Tucker's new book have powerful implications for women, families, and our society. A longtime writer for Smithsonian Magazine, Tucker writes mom genes to be scientific and accessible. Part scientific odyssey, part memoir, it weaves the latest research from top labs across the globe, including Yale, Princeton, and more, with Tucker's personal experiences to create a delightful, surprising, and poignant portrait of motherhood. Welcome to the show, Abigail. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we're going to be talking about motherhood. I'm a mother and a grandmother, so I have had a lot of experiences experience and experiences. Yes. Uh, And one of the things that you said in the book, I'm just going to start with this quote from you, giving birth really does a number on you. I think that kind of says it all, actually. (laughs) It does do a number on you. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, right? Um, Giving birth really does a number on you. How does that, how does that, how, what happens to us when we become mothers? Well, there is just so much craziness that happens, and I think that the physical stuff is so interesting and um, compelling that we kind of get lost in that sometimes. Like, you know, we can, you know, have suddenly grow curly hair if we had straight hair before, and we can, um, you know become more delicious to mosquitoes because we're giving off more uh, carbon dioxide in pregnancy. So there's all this physical stuff that happens. But what sort of intrigued me in the book was the hidden um, mental changes that women go through um, related basically to this development of a kind of core baby motive and the perception of and response to um, infant cues. And I kind of came to the conclusion that even though it's not something we think about that much in childbirth, there's a lot of other body parts in play. I kind of think that the brain is the most important organ in terms of um, what being a mother is. Okay. Yeah, because you how motherhood reconfigures your brain is what you talk about. So I, let's, I, I mean, you talk about in the book, well, some of the scientific stuff, but also your own personal experience. You have four kids, four children, unless you had yeah. a fifth since this book. Yeah, okay. I, so, <laughs> <laughs> not that but, I've, I've noticed, but <laughs> who knows? Okay. Uh, you never know. But okay, so five. <laughs> let's start with the first one, obviously. Yeah, let's uh, begin at the beginning. How did that giving birth, besides the physical that you've been talking about, how did that reconfigure your brain? Well, I was always one of these people who, I'm not going to say that I didn't like or hated children. I I was just kind of indifferent to them. And um, I, um, you know, reading these experiments, the way that um, scientists tease out some of these ideas in the lab is that they use lab rats and basically a virgin lab rat that's to say a, a lab rat that hasn't had babies yet acts a lot like I remember acting before I had kids they really are just kind of indifferent 
to babies. Um, they will run away from them. They'll kind of try to go someplace quieter if they hear their cries. But um, once the lab rat becomes a mother, it's really a startling change, like a, almost like a flip is switched inside of the animal. Once she becomes a mother, she starts expressing this extreme preference for babies. Um, there's an experiment where they gave lab rats an opportunity to hit a lever to get food, which is what the virgin lab rats really like, or babies. And the lab rats who just became mothers just hit the baby lever again and again and again. And I think one of the mothers hit the lever like 650 times over the course of a four hour experiment. And she didn't stop. It was like the, the scientist was like, okay, now we have to stop this experiment because I'm tired of putting little baby rats down this chute. And that whole, um, that, that change of motive and drive just reminded me so much of what happened to me in the hospital when I delivered my first daughter. And I'm not going to say that it was like a beautiful Hallmark card type experience. It was kind of a failed natural delivery, resulted in a C-section, the baby went to the NICU. And so it certainly wasn't a bed of roses, but this epiphany that I had when I first lay eyes on my daughter was just kind of the most... It, I guess the most profound thing that had ever happened to me. And it's just so odd as an adult human to experience a change in what you find to be rewarding. And that's kind of into this idea that um, these researchers talk about how motherhood is actually a stage of development. It's like adolescence. Your brain is changing in a radical way. It's the most radical change that we see in the adult brain outside of things like traumatic brain in- injuries. You know, I, I totally agree, and that has been my experience as well as I'm listening to you and as reading the book. That is absolutely where I was at. at as you talk about the the virgin brain, I had no patience. Yeah, it's sort of indifference. If I went to a restaurant, a baby was crying, please get the baby out of there. But then once I had my own, I had, uh, you know, I understood, you know, this poor woman is getting to go out for dinner. I get it. And so, yeah, it, it, it's so true. And it, it's a... Uh, but to hear you say it's part of a developmental stage. So what, given that, what is, what, what's the impact in terms of women um, and our influence on society? Because our whole brains, if it's a different stage of development, what does that mean in terms of our social environment? That's, that's a very good question. So there are these sort of um, unsettling images that come up in some of these studies where scientists will take um, brain scans of women before they have kids and um, after the kids are born. And they can see changes in the structure of the brain and um, fluctuations in gray matter, basically. And so there is an actual, this isn't just like a story we're telling ourselves or a label that we're, you know, taping on our on our shirts you know, there is an actual change in, um, in how our brains work and that has implications that ripple out beyond just our, you know, behaviors inside of the home. Um, we are, have a change in the way that we perceive the world. You know, we our sense of smell changes. We see things differently, especially certain things like strangers' faces. There's... Um, labs that have studied, you know, how we interpret kind of like what is threatening to us. Um, And then there's also this whole idea of um, mommy brain, uh, which is a controversial subject because a lot of the 
um, the deficits that moms kind of report in early in parenthood do have to do probably with those 700 hours of lost sleep that new moms um, forfeit every uh, in the first year. Um, but there's also research that shows that um, we do experience a, um, a marked difficulty with verbal recall, which was as a writer something that I didn't necessarily want to want to hear. Um, but that this is the one area where scientists can more or less agree that yeah, we since we're, our economy of attention is focused on this other thing, some of our higher order human skills may be atrophying in in the meantime. But that's not to say that moms are are stupid. We're actually enhanced in certain ways. Um, lab rat moms are better at casing mazes and finding food than. Um, uh, those virgins that we talked about. And also there's an interesting cumulative effect, like the rat moms who've had two litters or three litters are better than the, the first time rat moms who are in turn better than the, um, than the virgins. So um, I, I feel like, you know, this change is, is at the core of mammalian biology. It's not something that women need to be ashamed of or worried about. However, I do think that there's ways that societies can help safeguard these new mothers as they're going through this period of plasticity to make sure that they change in the way that, you know, that that makes them be the, the best moms that they can be. And also, so that they can return to other aspects of their life, their, their professional life, um, because I believe that that um, can be really enhancing for, for moms, and especially things like the social networks that women have at their jobs and the feelings of um, self-esteem that they get from, from working there and their place in a, in a hierarchy. All of that can actually be good for maternal behavior. So, Ab- Abigail, I have to ask you then, what is this, how does this impact when moms and dads reverse roles because we're talking about neuroplasticity. Like, so they say mom's the one, uh, you know, out and working and dad's taking care of the kids. Uh, so how's his brain, you know, how does, how does that work? Does his so brain dad, change? The, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so the, I should start off by saying that even though mom science is a relatively new and sort of underfunded field, it's not as, you know, in, in such dire straits as dad science. Dad, dad science is, is really kind of just emerging. There's not that many studies. Um, but basically, you know, they're still the, virgin. The gist is that they're still virgin, ever virgin. <laughs> yeah. They, they basically, the, the gist is that they, um, that, you know, any, a dad or indeed any person, like say, like uh, a close aunt or an adoptive mom can go through a mom-like brain change if, if that person is exposed to the, the, an infant enough. Being exposed to an infant, there's kind of like an, a reversed process that can happen where moms, biological moms go through this birth process and they become chemically incentivized to care for these infants. And then that process basically becomes hardwired at a certain point and you no longer need like oxytocin or estrogen or progesterone and all these things. You're kind of on autopilot. There's a way in which um, it can work the other way where an, um, an animal or a human hanging out with babies devotedly enough, diligently enough, can begin to change. So that would say something for like um, two dads. I just want to interrupt because some some kids have two dads. So that would, that 
Yeah. So that would be a, a exactly. Yeah. And they're, okay. they're, they've actually researched um, two dad families and shown through um, brain imaging that those guys' brains resemble the um, the maternal brain more than, say, like the average dad does. Um, and even in just like your standard, um, you know, man and woman couple, the, um, the dad can go through hormonal changes. Like there's things like drops in testosterone that happen. They can have that Kuvade syndrome thing where the dad starts to gain a little bit of weight and stuff <laughs> like that alongside the mom. Um, but there are also, you know, diff- big differences, I think. I mean, the, the degree of hormonal change that the man goes through is not anything like the, what the woman goes through. And more than anything, like the dad... For the mom, the bio mom, it's all sort of non-optional. For dad, you know, you can technically be a biological father of a kid that you've never met. And in that case, the dad's not going to go through any kind of hormonal transformation. The dad has to make the commitment to be present um, and to be with the pregnant woman and the new baby in order to go through change. You know what's interesting, and I'm t- uh, because you talk about grandmothers in the book as well, uh, maternal and paternal grandmothers. And as a grandmother, I realized that all of those things that you're, you know, those the the way the the uh, mom brain functions when you have a grandchild, it kick. You know, you maybe have not been doing the, you know, uh, tra- I've been traveling around the world, doing all other kinds of things. Now here's a grandchild. All that stuff kicks in again. You know, you're babysitting for yeah. him. You hear the baby breathing in the middle of the night. You all of those things that you thought, boy, you know, that's over. No, it kicks right back in. That you're and and so it all, yeah, makes a lot of sense. That's that's so interesting. One um, researcher at Yale used this expression that sticks in my head, which is that. You know, a mom, when you're a mom, your ticket gets punched. And that means that it's kind of like a one-way trip. Like, you you know, your brain, you can you can go back to, to living, you know, whatever kind of, of life you want. But there's elements of that maternal transformation and that stage of development that stay with you. And that's why, in a way, um, older women who've had children are sort of like, the be all end all of babysitters because like that maternal circuitry is a real thing and it's there. Like you just have to kind of grease it up a little bit and, and, you know, they will um, mobilize. Um, And the other thing that I was fascinated by too, with the grandma literature was how vital grandmothers are, especially maternal grandmothers to the, um, the mental health of, um, you have have to watch it there. I'm the paternal grandmother. (laughs) The paternal grandma, yeah. There, yeah. There's, um, and your book, we got a little bit of a bad rap, not totally, but anyway, go on. Yeah, that there, there are these, you know, these studies where the paternal grandma doesn't have as much um, protective influence over the um, the woman and and her family. I mean, I don't know. I have uh, my uh, husband's mom, you know lives two miles away and takes care of our kids all the time. But there is this, um, this idea in the literature that the maternal grandma is more of a, of a global constant. So I think in any given family, the paternal grandma can be just as important or more important. But okay. if you look, if these anthropologists who sort of take these surveys around the world find more of a common thread with the role of the maternal grandma. Okay, well, I'll accept that. That's okay. Uh, 
<laughs> I won't be offended. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the fat you because you do the factors uh, that shape an individual uh, a mother's behavior because there are a lot of things that you know the baby's sex you talked about your own delivery breastfeeding all of those kinds of things class relationship we can status uh, trauma and depression because you went through postpartum depression so um, all of those things can affect uh, mom's behavior or mother's behavior. Exactly. I, I think the the twin poles of what I found so striking about this research is how similar human moms are to not just other human moms, but to those lab rat and mice moms, to, to monkey moms, to orco moms. It's like this maternal circuitry is one of the most ancient parts of our brain, and it's sort of like the definitive characteristic of mammals. Um, that said, anybody who's, you know, been to a, a on a trip around the world, as you were talking about, or, you know, even just down to your local playground, you can sort of observe these profound differences between and among mothers. And I was really captivated by that because I just find that in my my own mommy people watching um, activities, I'm just always curious about what makes you act this way and what makes me act this way. And there's so many different factors at play. I mean, mothers are people. We have sort of past we have, um, you know, we were raised in certain ways, but there's these other influences that I had never really thought of. Um, and some of those have to do with, um, you know, whether you had a, a boy or a girl is a good example. Um, I had no idea. I ha- I've had both. I had no idea. Nobody ever told me at all these million OB visits that having a boy predisposes you to certain um, complications, um, including prenatal diabetes and uh, C-sections, but also there's some work that suggests that mothers of boys are slightly more prone to to postpartum depression. Um, And that's actually when I did get my episode of postpartum depression. That has to do with interesting reasons, like um, the fact that um, boys are a little bit bigger and a little bit sort of more taxing. There also might be a little bit of a clash between the immune system, the the, the Y-based boy and the the X-based girl, I mean, mom body. Um, But it's just like these ripple effects are fascinating. Like I had no idea that moms make different um, quality of breast milk for for boys versus girls. Um, And so that's just one tiny, and they even move a little bit differently in the womb. And some labs think that the way that fetuses move are a form of conditioning of the mother. Like if you're going to have a... Oh, I want to take you back on that one. That's very, I did, I missed that. That's very interesting. I never realized, and uh, maybe I missed that in, in the book, but that they produce different kinds of milk. I've had three sons, three grandsons, uh, three brothers, uh, wow. an ex-husband, a boyfriend. I don't have any girls. <laughs> that's, so. and, you know, and what I found, like, the thing that's even crazier is that there is this whole um, area of research about the conditions, like, that having a boy or a girl may itself be a signal of environmental conditions, like, in the wake of stressful national events, like, say, like 9-11, there was a drop in the number of um, of boys born in, in America. And that's 
there's this um, evolutionary biology idea that when conditions are kind of scary out there, that, you know, having a girl is sort of like the safer play because it's, you know, she's going to probably go off and have, you know, two to four grandkids no matter what. Whereas if you can have a really good environment and raise a really big, strong boy, he might go off to have, you know, 100 kids and your genes will spread even farther. And so that's kind of a thesis about why that occurs. But this idea that there's culls of fetal male fetuses um, after um, stressful events is kind of a more established than I ever thought. I had no idea about any of that. Fascinating research. I, I, it really is. I want to, We don't have that much time left, so I want to just ask you this thing about, uh, because you talk about, I mean, culture and maternal instinct, it's, it's powerful, which we've been talking about, but also fragile, and that our society, let's say our, our culture, uh, doesn't really uh, help support moms that well, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? That we aren't doing the best that we could do and that there are other countries who or cultures who do better at it, supporting the maternal instinct and, and helping moms. And I was thinking about this, I interviewed, uh, I can't remember her, uh, The Danish Way of Parenting. That's a book, you're probably familiar with it, that's very different from our way of parenting or our, the way, I don't know if you are, but familiar with that book, but that it's a much more supportive and relaxing way of parenting than how we parent here in the United States. Yeah, and the the just things like, um, you know, the the resources that, that cultures make available to, to new mothers, it's not like just that these are kind of like perks that you get and, you know, it's it's nice to spend five days lazing around at the hospital instead of like 36 hours or 48 hours, which is what Americans get. But the idea is that, you know, these things that we are, these cues and signals that we as a culture are giving to mothers during this transforming period of plasticity actually might impact their behavior. And women who don't feel supported, um, who don't have good relationships with their families or the baby's father are prone to sort of suboptimal outcomes. They, you know, are more likely to get um, postpartum depression, for instance. And there's ways that cultures, especially um, certain European countries, um, have developed of sort of simulating that social support if it doesn't really exist. Like, um, in uh, the Netherlands, they have these baby nurses who will go home with the new mothers for not just like one day and not just a week, but two weeks and, and help them um, figure out the ropes of parenting, but also, and also just like cook them dinner and make them not feel so alone. So it's just, um, there's a whole slew of things that, that we could do, you know, and then also other things, not only paid maternity leave, but paid paternity leave. Like there was a study of Swedish paid paternity leave policies that showed that by giving dads paid time off from work, there's a measurable drop in the amount of um, anti-anxiety medication that new mothers get at the, at the pharmacy. So it's like, again, by, by facilitating the social relationships in a woman's world, we can protect her psychologically. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area, particularly, you know, women who want to go back to work, women who want to combine work and being moms. I mean, how do you do it? I mean, look, you're, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've done it. You've got to have four children, and you are at the top of your game professionally. So you 
You have done it because you are doing it. <laughs> well, it doesn't always feel like that. I, um, definitely, there's been certain mornings when I have not felt the most um, maternal when I say, you know, quiet, kids, I've got to go upstairs and work on my book about the maternal instinct. Um, but it's, it's true that um, I think it's really important that we don't um, let this science um, eclipse our our professional goals as people, you know, we do undergo these brain changes. That doesn't mean that we can't continue on with our professional lives. And I think that I, there's an enhancement of my maternal behavior by, you know, participating in, in sort of a larger world and, um, you know, being able to kind of take those ideas and, and, and talk with my kids. But that's just my personality. I also think that there's people who, you know, let's say that you're uh, somebody who works a swing shift at a restaurant. Well, I'm not sure that we can argue as a society that, you know, it's going to like in necessarily enhance your behavior by being forced to go, by financial necessity to go back to that job. Although maybe it would. I mean, maybe you have a great relationship with the other people who work at that restaurant and it makes you feel good. So I think it's important while I think there's huge lessons that we can draw from this research. I think it's true that there's so much variety among women and we can't, there's not that many hard and fast rules, only like guidelines. Well, I love your book. I really, I already recommended it this morning to three people. Um, uh, Especially to one who's going to another, who's going to be a grandmother, her daughter's pregnant. So I said, this is a perfect book for both of you. Um, Give us a website. We have a couple minutes left website and or websites to go to, to we can buy the book. I assume um, online bookstores everywhere, uh, but a website that uh, about the book, but also about you and 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 what you're doing, and we can follow you. Um, well, my my website is um, it's abigailtucker.com, and um, there's some links to my um, you know to to this book, and then my last book, which was about the the domestication of house cats, also kind of about an interesting. <laughs> brain change that happened um, in, in another different kind of mammal. Um, the other thing I'd say is that um, people, who, especially people who live near research institutions and who are young moms or pregnant women, it's really worth it to check out the websites of, um, of uh, those universities to see if there's a maternal behavior lab, because one of the really fun things that I got to do was volunteer for a couple of experiments where they studied, you know, the way that my brain reacted as I looked at you know, baby pictures are heard, the baby cries. And we have these 30 seconds spend, left. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. They, they spend so much time trying to recruit moms um, and we can make their lives easier by coming to them and that will save their energy and they can do better work basically. So I'd encourage Good. people to check out um, that. Great idea. Thank you. Abigail Tucker and her book is mom jeans. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 